0: We're going to talk about Genesis chapter 14 this morning. I'm going to start reading actually in verse 18 of Genesis chapter 13, because I want us to appreciate where Abraham is or where Abram is and what things he is doing before this, um, um, the Lord opens this next chapter in his life. Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, and Keldeleomor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, and Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemember, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. All these were joined together in the Vale of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Keldelemorar, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year came Keldelemorar and the kings that were with him, and smote the Rephaims in Ashtaroth, Carnaim, uh, and the Zumzims in Ham, and the Emims in Sheva, Kirathaim. And the Horites in their Mount Seir unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to Enishpeth, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites and dwelt in Hazar Tamar. That dwelt in Hazem Tamar. And there went out the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adama and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela... The same as Zor, and they joined battle with them in the vale of Siddim, with Kelilimar, the king of Elam, and with Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings with five. And the vale of Siddim was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they remained, and they that remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and the brother of Anar. And these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, He armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobab, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people." And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his people say, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that we might appreciate why you have included this in the narrative of your word. We would ask, Lord, that you would open it, that we might see Christ in what things he hath done to free his people from bondage and return them unto thee. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Amen. Um, Well, no doubt you can... uh, You've discerned from my prayer that what we're going to talk about here is this situation that took place with respect to Abram going and returning his brother Lot, um, setting him free, and as a, Abram, Abram being a type of Christ and what the Lord has done for our benefit as well. Um, we should appreciate that this narrative opens, and uh, when it does, we find Abram um, at the altar of God where he can appreciate or should be appreciating the substitutionary um, nature of the offering of an animal in behalf of ourselves. For the wages of sin is death. And all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God has set forth this idea of a substitutionary offering that because of our sin, something must die in our stead. And back in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord let it. Let us know that that substitutionary offering would be of the seed of the woman. It would indeed be Christ himself, that he would manifest himself in flesh and that he would be the substitutionary offering. So Abram here is perhaps with what light has been given to him up to this point in his life, looking forward to the manifestation of Christ in flesh and that he would be the substitutionary offering. So he remains at the altar, which we note that Lot is conspicu- conspicuously absent um, from. So we recall that the word mamre meant fatness or strength, and Hebron means communion. So there he is, there with respect to what's going on uh, around him, that he is strengthening himself by virtue of his communion with the Lord. And this, of course, is a wonderful lesson for all of us that when we are in communion with the Lord, when we open his word, meditate upon it, and pray unto him, that we are being spiritually strengthened against uh, the wiles of the devil, against this world, the things that the world would put in front of us as a means to either tempt us or to draw our thoughts away from Christ. So in a relative sense, we've talked about how um, Sodom and Gomorrah are literally built at the lowest place on the planet Earth. So by uh, by contrast, Abram is up in the mountains and he has removed himself, if I can use that language, from the things that, the drama that is transpiring around him and down there at the bottom of the uh, the mountains. Um, this, of course, is, again, indicative of where we as Christians should be. We should ever be dwelling on the mountain. The Lord says that we are kings and priests in Christ and that we reign with him in heaven. So we are really in two places. We are here in the flesh in this world. But spiritually, uh, the Lord is with us and we are with the Lord. And so we are ruling and reigning with him upon Mount Zion and that's where our thoughts and our hearts should be is up there. So we have to make an effort to not let the world get us down and almost every time we fellowship we find our conversation drifting into the foolish things of this world and it's heavy it's it's heavy upon our hearts what things we see taking place around us because we have people in this world that we love. And we hate to see them subject to the uh, foolishness and the oppression that is taking place all around us. But yet we have to keep in mind that that is God's will for the planet. His will will be done. And as I will show to us here in a little bit, that the Babylonians, we live in Babylon, the Babylonians are going to subjugate this earth. And indeed, they already have. We live in a Babylonian world system. So that is what is taking place with respect to Abraham. He's up there on the mountain. And there's all sorts of strife going on around him as the Babylonians are coming back to resubjugate the Canaanites. And God said that would be the way it is because the Canaanites are the sons of Ham and the sons of Ham will serve the sons of Shem. The Lord shared that with us when Noah came out of the ark. And so God said it's gonna happen and indeed we see it happening right here. Now, what has Lot done? Well, he has pitched his tent towards Sodom. Having seen the wonderful valley down below him and having his eyes as big as silver dollars, he decided that he would go live down there. The The valley prior to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was watered like the Garden of Eden. And so he goes down there. He pitches his tent towards Sodom. And so now as we come upon this particular drama, we find that he is actually living in Sodom, which you'll recall means fettered. It's like being shackled. And so there he is. He is living amongst men, Who were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. So he's living amongst a group of people that are literally shaking their fist in God's face in terms of the lifestyle that they are living. So by this time, he's probably taking a taken a wife from amongst the people that are there, and perhaps he started to raise a family. So we see in verse four of chapter 14 that for twelve years. These five kings have served the Babylonians or paid tribute unto them. In the 13th year, they decide they don't want to do that anymore. And so because it takes time for a word to get all the way up to Babylon and then all the way back down, it is in the 14th year that these uh, four kings come down to resubjugate the uh, Canaanites and so that they will continue to pay tribute unto them. So I want us to appreciate what things the Babylonians did as part of this uh, resubjugation We read here in verse 5 that they came down and they smote various peoples. They're coming down the east side of the Jordan River, and they uh, smote the Rephaims, which are a people of giants. They smote the Zumzims and the Emims. The Emims also are a nation consisting of giant people, and they smite the uh, Horites. Then they're down there, and they uh, war against the five kings. Of those five kings they uh, war against, we read that two of them fall, that would be the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, whereas the rest fled to where? They flee to a mountain. And then on the way back up, after resubjugating those cities, they um, um, subjugate all of the country of the Amalekites and the Amorites, and then we read that Abraham pursues them unto Hobah and that he smites them with 318 men. Now, that should be um, of interest to us because, obviously, the Babylonian army is extremely powerful. They have, um, um, they have smitten a number of nations, four on the way down. They submit the five, uh, smite the five kings, and they smite a number of nations completely on their way back after heffering suffered some casualties in all of these different wars. Um, Nevertheless, they they retained their power and they overcame these other ones. Now, they overcame two nations, which consisted of people that were giants. And I want us to appreciate that they were, well, they were giants. (laughs) It's not like tall people, like when you think of a wiry, tall basketball player. Recall the description of Goliath that he was nine and a half feet tall. And so he was very large and he was very strong. Scripture tells us that the male that um, Goliath wore weighed 125 pounds. So as Goliath is going to war, he's wearing a male of 125 pounds to say nothing about what his um, shield might weigh. And his um, spearhead, it says, weighed 600 shekels of iron, which is equivalent to 15 pounds. That's just the spearhead that he's carrying with him. So very, very strong people. Og, the king of Bashan. The Lord gives us a description of his bed. It was made of iron. So this is a very heavy man. he He's laying on a bed of iron, and it is 15 feet tall by 6 feet wide. So these are very big and very heavy and very strong people. In 1 Samuel 17, 11, when uh, Goliath is withstanding the host of the uh, Israelites, um, we read that all Israel was dismayed, and greatly afraid for forty days due to one giant. So I think we should appreciate again how, um, what strength the Babylonian army had. They've come down with four kings, they semite two people groups of giants, plus the Zumzims, the Horites, and then uh, they go to um, overcome the five kings and then all of the country of the Amalekites Amor- and Amorites. So. One principle I want us to appreciate here is Romans, again, 8.28, that all things work together uh, for the good of them that love God, them who are the called according his purpose. God is bringing the sword of the wicked people to come down and subjugate these nations. And he's really preparing a way for the Israelites, who he has yet to send down to Egypt, where they'll grow as a nation and then come back in. He's wiping out the giants that will be. Um, in their way in Deuteronomy chapter two verses nine through twelve, we can appreciate also what the Lord says is that He has given the land on the east side of the Jordan where these giants dwelled to both the children of Lot and to esau 's children. So a great number of years ahead of time he 's already cleaning up the land and making ready for his people, so he uses the sword of the wicked to prepare the way. Now, in a a biblical context, we should appreciate what the Lord says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, where he speaks about how by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, the people have taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain Christ. So God used the wicked hands to prepare a way for us by sending his son to the cross to die for our sins. So that principle extends um, from the cross all the way back to what what he's doing here and that these things are working for the good of his people that he will later bring back Into that land. So he's removing these giants from the land. So again, we should appreciate that all the world will be subjugated by Babylon. In Revelation chapter 13, the Lord has us appreciate that, where in verse 1 he talks about a beast that comes out of the sea and he gives us the description of the beast, and we can appreciate that it is Babylon that we live in today and that Satan is the power behind it. In verse seven, it says, And it was given unto him, that would be the beast, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And so we're seeing that literally take place here. The Babylonians are coming down and having power over different nations and tongues. And then verse eight says, All that dwell on the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So he's subjugating all people Everybody on the planet is going to worship him except for Christians. Christians will never worship the beast because the Lord will not permit it. So I want you to think of Lot and what's going to take place with respect to Lot's life and how this drama is going to play out because Lot ultimately is not going to be worshiping the beast. But right now he's locked up into this worldly system as we once were. Verse 9, "'If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity.'" And he that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So what is the patience and the faith of the saints? That we trust in the Lord, that he will indeed overcome these nations, that he will overcome the beast, and he will overcome the dragon that giveth the power to the saints. Our deacon read for us this morning, Revelation chapter 19, um, verses 11 through 21, and we should appreciate there that the Lord fights our battles for us and that he indeed is going to destroy um, the nation of uh, Babylon and shall free all of his uh, people. So, um, seeing this drama start to unfold, we should appreciate that Sodom—excuse me—that Lot, who's living in Sodom, is in fetters. He is now taken literally in fetters, not just a name only, and to be sold into bondage in Babylon. So he's being taken as a spoil of war, taken to be sold into uh, Babylon into bondage. Now, the reason I've set before us how powerful and how strong a nation Babylon was, As I want us to appreciate this. There is nobody and no way that Lot can be freed from the Babylonians. They have overcome giants. They have overcome multiple nations. Lot is one of their prisoners. Who is going to free Lot from bondage? Certainly nobody of the flesh. Nobody of this world can free him from it. He certainly cannot free himself from it. And this, of course, certainly would represent us, how we were before the Lord came unto us, that we were um, in the world and we were in bondage to the world. We were in bondage to sin and we were in bondage to Satan. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And it was there that God came to us to pay attention to this world. He came to make us free, make us free. So we see Abram here as a type of Christ He's been roused to activity for Lot's sake and for no one else's sake. And interestingly enough, we appreciate that he goes down there and he describes Lot as his brother. That's in verse 16. He went to free his brother Lot. So there's, it's because of this relationship that he's calling him his brother that he steps into this um, um, combat to free his what he calls as his brother. Now, the Lord says the same thing of us. In Hebrews chapter two, verse 11, it says that he is not ashamed to call us brethren. And so we see this wonderful parallel between Abram and Lot. Lot is his nephew, you know, he's not his brother, but yet he calls him his brother here. The Lord calls him his brother in verse 16, just as Christ calls us his brother in Hebrews chapter two, verse 11. And so we see that Abram goes to rescue him. In verse 14 of chapter 14, we read, And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued him unto Dan. Now, in verse 14, there's a couple of words that might be translated um, a little bit differently. One would be um, armed, instructed. I see that. Led forth, he leads forth his trained or instructed uh, servants to go with him on this particular battle. So I want you to think of yourself as an instructed servant, been instructed by the Lord, by which we go forward um, at His bidding to do His will. Now, it says here also that they were born in His own house, and we should think of ourselves as being born in the house of the Lord. We are born again, and we are born from above. Scripture says that we have been begotten by the word of truth, by the word of truth. And so we see in parallel here um, in uh, chapter 14 in terms of um, Abram going forth to free his brother, uh, parallel to what our deacon read for us in uh, Revelation chapter 19, um, in verse 14 in particular. In verse 14 of Revelation 19, it says, "...and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed with fine linen, white and clean." So we, the armies, or the saints, which would be us, uh, which are in heaven. As I said, we literally are in two places. We are both here, and we are both in heaven. And it says they're clothed with fine linen, white and clean, which up in verse 8 of chapter 19, it says that the fine linen is the white, uh, excuse me, to her was greeted, that would be the church, that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So clearly what is in view here would be the Christians going forth out into the world, um, following the Lord who goes before us to preach the gospel by which people might be um, freed. And so we see in there that he, uh, Abram, is going to smite the Babylonian army just as the Lord riding on his white horse goes forward with his sword and smites um, the Babylonian system and frees uh, from um, the king of Babylon, which we know is Satan, all of the prisoners that he would free. Now in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Verses 3 and 5, again, we appreciate what it says because says, uh, it says, For we, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So when we go forth into the world, preaching the gospel, reproving and rebuking, we are um, bringing everybody into um, the captivity of Christ. We are not going out with a sword. You do not hold a sword to a man's throat and tell them to confess that Christ is king because it means nothing. Um, A confession like that, that's uh, exhorted from somebody is absolutely meaningless. It's God who has to turn the heart of the individual. And so it is Christ who has to go ahead of us on his white horse And he's got to turn the hearts towards men. He's got to shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into their heart. And this he does when we uh, go with him also and preach the gospel to that individual. And so it is by this means that we go forth into the world and people are freed from bondage. Now, we should appreciate um, that Christ's victory is complete. We see that Abraham's victory is complete um, in verse uh, 16 where the Lord sets us before us here about how he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. He has completely routed the Babylonians. As a matter of fact, in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, it talks about how when he was returning from the slaughter um, that he met with uh, Melchizedek. So, Um, The language in the book of Hebrews is a little bit more descriptive than just the word smiting here in chapter 14, that he literally destroyed the army of the Babylonians that had come down. And as we read in Revelation 19, it talks about how the birds of the air, the fowls of the air shall, shall eat the blood or eat the flesh of the kings and the people. So we see here a complete routing of the Babylonian army, a complete victory for Christ. Now, we should um, understand what it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where it talks about how the Lord is not willing that any of his people should perish. And we're also going to see this with respect to the Lot's life. In chapter 3, verse 9, we read of 2 Peter, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is longsuffering to us Long-suffering to the elect, long-suffering to those whom he will save, is not is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God will not have any of his elect perish. He will not have any of his people perish. He will not lose one of them. They will all come to repentance. And he's patient and long-suffering with them because think about how you lived in your life up until such time as Christ came to you. You were in blindness and you were in bondage and you were doing the will of Satan and the will of your flesh in this world. And we see that in Lot as well. God is going to be very patient with Lot here. So because God, God loves Lot, he shows great mercy on Sodom and Gomorrah. He frees those people and um, sets them free. And I'm using that word intentionally. And so even though they are great sinners before the Lord, they have all been set free. And so they are going to continue to live the way they have been living because God yet loves Lot. God is patient and he is long suffering. So Lot has been set free and the people have been set free. Now there's two words that can have different meanings in the scripture. One is preservation and one is reservation. Lot is going to be preserved by God. And this we read about in first excuse me first Peter, oh chapter 1 verse 5 where it talks about saints. We get the doctrine of the preservation of the saints from the scriptures and he speaks of the saints here the elect where he says who are kept by the power of God Through faith, unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. They're kept. We are kept by the power of God unto salvation. God will not lose any of His people, and the Sodomites are not preserved. They are reserved. They are reserved. Second Peter chapter three verse seven. You see, this takes place literally in um, the life of the Sodomites um, in uh, chapter nineteen of Genesis. In uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, we read, But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word that would be by Christ, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition, which means ruin of ungodly men. So what is God doing with Sodom and Gomorrah? He's reserving them for the day of punishment, where he will literally burn them up, rain them, rain down upon them. Um, fire and brimstone. Now, this helps us to appreciate that God does not love everybody. And there are some people that seem to think God does love everybody. But again, obviously, he uh, slaughtered the four kings of the Babylonians. He doesn't love them. He's going to rain fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. So he must not love them. But in Psalm chapter 11, um, the Lord says that really very clearly um, to us that he does not love everybody. In verse 4 of Psalm 11, it says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. So you should appreciate God sitting up in heaven, looking down upon the workings of men on the earth. In verse 5, it says, The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked, and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Now, there are those that would argue that God loves the sinner but hates the sin, but that's not what it says here. He hates the individual. It says that. He, um, the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and a horrible tempest, this shall be the portion of their cup. Now that's literally what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's literally going to rain fire and brimstone upon them. Verse seven, for the righteous Lord loveth righteousness and his countenance doth behold the upright. So it's hard to imagine, at least for me, looking down upon Sodom and Gomorrah and finding Lot righteous, but yet we know that he is because in 2 Peter chapter two, it tells us that he is righteous and that he is just. And so we see here that um, Lot is freed, and the Sodomites and those of Gomorrah are all freed. And what do we find happening to them? But what is written in Scripture in Second uh, Peter, which I forgot to mark, in Second Peter chapter two, verse twenty-two, where we read the proverb of, "But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb." The dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing. And so I want us to appreciate the difference between being set free and being made free. Now, with respect to what took place with Lot, we saw that God delivered him from the power of darkness. That's Colossians 1.13. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness? Then there's a comma, and it says, And hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. So with respect to what's taken place with Lot in this particular verse, we only see the first half of it taking place at this point in time. In verse 15, we saw that Lot was in bondage and walking by night, and that's the scene that Abram came upon when he went to free him, is that it was at nighttime. So he has delivered him from the power of darkness, uh, certainly the Babylonian rule in the rain, and he has set him free. Now, I've always had to be in my bonnet about the Bibles that translate that verse in the scriptures about um, the Lord setting versus making people free. In John chapter 8, verse 31 and verse 32, we read, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, he's speaking of himself, Christ, and the truth, which is Christ, shall make you free, shall make you free. It doesn't say set you free, it says make you free. In verse 36, we read, if the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. There is a pattern in scripture that you see in the book of Acts where the Lord makes people free, not setting them free, but makes them free. Recall when the apostles were arrested in Acts chapter 5, verse 19, it says that the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them out. Didn't just open the door, but opened the door and brought them out. Made them free. Acts chapter 12, verses 6 through 11, that's where Peter, you'll recall, has been arrested by Herod and he's being um, held until such time as Herod would have him slain. Again, the angel of the Lord comes to Peter, smites him on the side, raises him up, tells him to follow him. The angel of the Lord opens the doors, and Peter follows him out. He is leading Peter out. So again, he is made free. In Acts chapter 16, verses 26 and 28, that's the occasion when Paul and Silas are in prison, and they are subject, their arms and their heads are in shackles or in bands. And it says that there was an earthquake. And i quote, all the doors were opened and their bands were loosed. They were set free. What did they do? Well, the um, centurion, uh, the Roman guard comes in and he's trembling because if they're gone, then his life will be substitute for them. He's trembling. And they say, we are all here. They were set free, but they were not made free. They did not depart from the prison. And when it comes, t- comes time for them to depart, um, they, speaking of the judicial system by which they are subject to as Roman citizens, they say, no, let them come themselves and fetch us out. Let them come and make us free. So we see this pattern in Scripture where people are not set free by Christ. They are made free. So we see that Lot here has been set free, but he has not yet been made free. He's not yet been translated to the kingdom in Christ. Well, there's a problem because this is the way our flesh is in Romans 7, 18. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Lot cannot free himself from Sodom. He's been unequally yoked to a woman. He sees all of the things that are going down there. We know that it vexes his righteous soul, and yet he can't leave the place. Um, So again, as i would mentioned, we note that Lot is absent from the table. He's absent from the altar. He's absent from the occasion where Melchizedek is going to meet with um, um, Abram. And so he doesn't enjoy the benefits of being strengthened by communion with God. Now, we should appreciate, with respect to ourselves, that God has put his spirit in our hearts, whereby we might find the strength to... um, to follow the Lord and to be obedient unto Him, because it is the Lord that worketh in us both the will and to do of His good pleasure. So Lot, being absent from communion and fellowship with the Lord, what does he do? He goes right back to Sodom, and he is once again subject to the king of Sodom, um, where he was before he was quote freed. Now. Had he been made free, he would have been translated into the kingdom of Christ, and he would have dwelled in a place where his hearts and affections would be fixed upon the Lord. It is not until Genesis chapter 19, verse 16, where Lot is literally made free. The angels come to him and drag him out of Sodom and make him free and where does he eventually go to dwell first he wants to go to another city then he ends up in a cave and we know that he is finally in the mountains where he was told to go by the angels in Genesis 19 17 he had been told to go to the mountain now where did the people flee in Genesis chapter 14 when they were sub- when they were at war with the Babylonians it says the ones that got away they fled to a mountain Um, And they were not taken into bondage. In Matthew chapter 24, when the Lord is speaking to the people, and he says, when you see the abomination of desolation uh, sitting forth in the temple of God, where did he tell the people to go? He says, flee to the mountains. And which mountain, of course, is he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's saying, come to me, flee to me. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24, it speaks about that mountain in particular that's alluded to here. It says, but ye, meaning the saints, are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, that's the mountain we are to go to, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church. We should all be in this mountain as God's people, united with him, one with him, and um, in in heaven with him, to the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the Judge of us all, and to the saints of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the Mediator of the New Covenant. That is the mountain that the Lord would have us to flee to. It is the heavenly Jerusalem, it is the heavenly Mount Zion, and there we are to go. And Lot does not go there though he has been set free, but it's not until he's made free that he does finally end up in the mountain and he's finally out of um, the subjugation of those living in Sodom. And then the Lord, of course, having uh, reserved those people unto judgment, rains fire and brimstone upon them. So we should appreciate as saints, and I want us again to encourage us to not be dragged down by the things of this world. I was visiting with a couple of the saints yesterday and they were talking about what things that uh, over the past several years that they had read and heard of in the news. And I thought to myself, there is a great deal of fear and anxiety that could be avoided if we would not let ourselves get dragged into the affairs of this world, because many of things have not come to fruition. But as far as I'm concerned, none of them will come to fruition in my life because I have been made free and I rule and reign with Christ in glory. It is the worldly system that would have you fear and doubt and be full of anxiety and be focused on them rather than to be focused on Christ. The world would capture your heart, and the Lord would not have that happen. He tells us to uh, not lean on our own understanding, but rather look to and rely upon Christ for all things. The victory has already been won. He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth, He has overcome all things. We know that it is through faith that the world itself is overcome. And the Lord has overcome all things for us. He tells that to his disciples. He tells them that he has overcome the world. Everything we see taking place in the world has been ordained um, by God. He is sovereign. He rules and reigns over everything. And as I mentioned here in Genesis chapter 14, there was but no doubt that the four kings would overcome the five kings because one are the Shemites and one of the Hamites. And God told us back in Genesis which one was gonna rule, which one was gonna serve. And that's the way it's gonna be as, as God, as Christ who the author and finisher of our faith is, as he rules and reigns in this world and brings all things to fruition until such time as he's ready to um, bring in the last saint, after which, as we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, he's going to destroy the earth and things will be behind us. So let us be encouraged. Let us keep our eyes up. Uh, we have a vertical um, fellowship with the Lord and we enjoy some horizontal fellowship because Christ is in us, but don't get bogged down in the horizontal. Let's uh, recall, as the Lord says, that the things that are visible are temporal and the invisible things are indeed eternal. Uh, with that, I'll say amen. Amen.